Thank you all for being here tonight. Thank you all for worshiping um, with, uh, with one another so far and glad to be um, in the Lord's house uh, to, uh, to come together around His Word. Um, and, and we are very privileged, very fortunate that we can do this tonight. Um, you might can expect, suspect by the title card, um, tonight um, is not a part of our John study. Um, it's a bit of an unexpected message, uh, one I didn't really plan uh, or, or have completely prepared to give um, until God, God started moving me in this direction. And, you know, yesterday I was out here studying and uh, the news broke uh, of the tragedy in El Paso. And, uh, of course, it wasn't long until more news broke of, of more tragedy in, uh, I believe, Dayton, Ohio, and of course there's been incidents in other parts of our country um, out west as well um, recently. And and sadly, you know, it's not really that surprising anymore to uh, hear about tragedies uh, similar to the ones that we've witnessed here the last couple of days and and other disasters and uh, terrorist attacks and uh, destruction and, and natural disasters. You know, reading headlines about mass shootings and, uh, um, you know, uh, these things are commonplaces in our news feeds and, and on our broadcast um, in today's world, aren't they? And, and, and it's a shame that that is a reality that we live in. And, and this message is not meant to be political, um, but I can warn you that no matter what side of the line you stand, um, stand on or, or stand behind, um, you might disagree with me um, at some parts in our message, and that's okay. Um, I'm not attempting to promote any agenda or, any other, uh, or anyone other than Jesus Christ. Um, I'm not advocating a, a political party. I'm not advocating a politician. Um, um, I'm advocating and I preach for one king and his name is Jesus and Jesus only. Of course, sometimes that causes me, um, who obviously as an American, as a person in, the two, in 2019, I have opinions. I have things that I watch the news or I read headlines and I hear things that are said by certain people on either side and my reaction is that's crazy or that's insane or I can't believe they get by with that and I can't believe they vote for that. And, you know, I get, Lindsay can tell you, I get, uh, get very uh, hyped up about politics sometimes. Um, But in my advocacy for Jesus and in my promoting of the kingdom of heaven, uh, sometimes I have to look at my own political ideas and say, you know what, that just isn't right and that just isn't isn't okay. So again, I'm not attempting to advocate any agenda other than Jesus Christ, and I'm not advocating any other message in the Word of God, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that's my source. I don't come at you with a with an agenda from some uh, part, some platform. I come to you from the with the Word of God, with the gospel of Jesus. So it's just a forewarning. I don't know if we're gonna, if anybody's gonna walk out of here saying, I can't believe he said that. You might, and I'm sure that won't be the first time or the last time. Um, but this is a message that I've chipped away at through the years uh, because of how frequent headlines of tragedy and loss have become and and how really normal it's become to wake up or to turn on the news or look at a a news feed and say, wow, another one. I can't believe it. Um, You know, it depends on how close to home these sorts of things land, but I know we all react differently to these, don't we? Now, maybe you're at a place where you just kind of think, wow, bummer, I can't believe it, but you can just turn the TV off or you can lay your phone down because it didn't happen to you. And I'm not saying that makes you a bad person, uh, but it just makes you kind of just, you know, numb to it, right? And, and maybe you're someone who really gets invested in it because maybe, uh, you know, uh, of where you're at and your family and, and situations that you find yourself in. I don't know where this lands with you. I don't know where these types of things land with you, but I know we all react differently. But here's the thing. I'm a pastor. You're a Christian. We're a part of the church of Jesus Christ. And I don't think these things can happen in our world and we just turn a blind eye to them. 
And I don't think that we can experience or, 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 or observe these sorts of tragedies and these sorts of things, that, as we've already said tonight, come from people who are clearly not in the right place and, 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 and are surrounded by things and ideologies that clearly are not being influenced by the Bible. I don't think we, I don't think I as a pastor, I don't think we as a church, I don't think we as Christians can just say, well, you know what, it didn't happen to me, so no big deal. Or, you know what, that gets, that gets into my politics, and I'm not going to ever stand against that because I stand for this, and I'm not going to ever say that because I stand for that. I vote this way because I vote this way, so I'm not going to really say anything because it all becomes political. Listen, don't be scared away by the politics of it all because you are stronger than that, and you stand for a greater kingdom than this measly one that we live in today. So, I think, I think there's something inside of you I think there's something inside of us all that demands a response, isn't there? Isn't there something inside that when something like this happens as a Christian, you think, I can't just be numb to that. I can't just sit back and say, that's the way the world is. I think that when these things happen, isn't there something inside of you that says this ought not to be and can't something be done or shouldn't something happen or can't people be changed? And maybe you've got in your head, well, is he saying that this should change? Or is he saying that this should change? Maybe that's important. Maybe that's part of this, is that you wonder, what am I advocating for? Because I'm not advocating for anything other than that maybe as Christians, isn't there something inside of you that says, shouldn't we do something? Shouldn't something change? Isn't there something we can do to make a difference in our world? Now, whether it's simply a prayer or action of some kind, isn't there something within us all that compels us or moves us? I know there is. You know, Jesus lived from this place. Jesus existed from this place. Uh, and, and was always, the Bible, you, you, there's this Greek word that Jesus literally, the, the gospel says, he was moved from his bowels. Or that he was moved from his gut. He was moved from his heart of hearts. He was moved with compassion when he observed tragedy of any kind. On one occasion in Matthew chapter 9, the Bible says, when he saw the crowds, Jesus, he had compassion for them. He was moved with compassion towards them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So his first response to tragedy, his first response to people that weren't where they needed to be was never anger. It was never, well, they ought to vote the right way or they ought to do this. His response was always one of compassion and one of just empathy because people, he would say, are like sheep, harassed and helpless without a shepherd. I think there's a little of that. I think there's a lot of that in all of you as Christians. I think that's how God wires you. I think there's a thumbprint of God on your soul that compels you to move. Now, we can't just simply say, well, I hate that, and move on. Because isn't it something, isn't it really just awful that we, you know, every few months we're praying for this city and that city. You know, you see people on Facebook, they'll post a thing, pray for El Paso, pray for, you know, uh, the, the, the church in Charleston, the church in Texas, the, 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 you know, West Virginia. People post these things and you're like, well, you know, I, isn't it awful that that's become normal? Isn't it awful that within, you know, or pray for this city that had a, you know, hurricane, whatever. Like, isn't it just awful that this is something we've just accepted and we've just decided, you know, that's just how it's going to be? We simply say, I hate that, and we move on. I think it's good that we talk about this, and I think it's good, even if it unsettles us, I think it's good to let this kind of weigh on our shoulders and that we might would be required to seek God's guidance regarding this. There are several passages in the Bible that really serve as templates for God's people to use in prayer. 
And I think there's one that if it wasn't written for Americans to pray, I don't know what other nation it was written for, uh, obviously Israel, but man, it just lines up with our country and our time and so well. But there's passages in the Bible that, that really, I think, are meant to cause us to consider, uh, that are meant to lead us into prayer, that, that we might invest emotionally, invest in the tragedy and anticipate relief. Have you ever prayed that way? Have you ever been so burdened and so overwhelmed about something that you, when you start praying, you start just, you, you are so eager for God to do something. You are so eager for God to make a difference. Maybe you're praying for somebody who's just going through something awful and you are so invested emotionally in their plight that you start just, you are so eager and you're anticipating relief to come their way. Now, one of the templates, I believe, is Psalms 94. Now, we're going to read this kind of in sections tonight. Um, the first seven verses are really uh, the, the words of someone going through something awful. Um, the next uh, few verses are the words of, of, of that same person observing how careless their surrounding or their, their, their observers are. And the last part of this is, is sort of a reaction to the world that does not care and a, 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 an anticipation of God who obviously does care. So uh, look at the first seven verses with me. We're going to read the whole thing um, right now, but I just wanted to kind of break it up, and I'll kind of signify to you whenever there's a change in tone. Psalm 94, verse 1, it says, this is a prayer. So this is David praying, um, maybe David himself going through a trial. Maybe he was just giving the nation a template that they might could use for prayer. He says, O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Rise up, O judge of the earth. Render punishment to the proud. Lord, how long will the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? So what is this prayer? Where is this, what's the posture of this person? This is a person that has observed evil running rampant on in his world. And he is praying and, and just begging God to do something about it. He's begging God to bring justice, to literally judge and bring vengeance against the wicked that seemingly get by with, thing, with one thing after another. So this is someone who has invested himself in the tragedy. He says, they utter speech and they speak insolent things. All the workers of iniquity boast in themselves. They break in pieces your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. And this is not David just praying for people that believe in God. This is David saying, God, the whole world belongs to you. And the, the, the oppressor, the wicked one, the evil one, the enemy of your people, the enemy of your kingdom, he is breaking us to pieces one tragedy after another. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. So the weakest among this people, the weakest among in the, in the society are the ones that seemingly fall by the wayside so easily without anybody to advocate for them. Yet they say the Lord does not see, nor does the God of Jacob understand. Now this, is, this, could, be, this could be coming from the weak or from the uh, oppressor. That, hey, I'm getting by with this and nobody's going to stop me. Or maybe the ones that are suffering are thinking, hey, does anybody care? Does anybody, is anybody ever going to do something about this? And then verses 8 through 11 are another section. Understand you senseless people, uh, senseless among the people, and you fools, when will you be wise? He who planted the ear, shall he not hear? He who formed the eye, shall he not see? He who instructs the nation, shall he not correct? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are futile. 
So David's prayer and David's response to that wicked one, that oppressor that just thinks they can get by with anything, is to say, do you not know that God knows everything and that there is none that does wrong, that God is not aware and God does not keep record and that God does not intend on justice? Let's get down to verse 16. This is a, kind of the closing thoughts of this prayer. Who will rise up for me against the wicked evildoers? Now this is maybe God speaking through David or God speaking uh, uh, on, on or David like asking, hey, who's going to stand up? Who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? So David as the oppressed, maybe David as the advocate for the oppressed, who is going to stand up and do something about this? Unless the Lord had been my help, David says, my soul would soon have settled in silence. And literally what he says there is, I lived in a land of do-nothing. I lived in a world where where politicians and people with power had no intentions on doing anything to help anybody. Does that not describe our country more to a T? David says, if I had not had the Lord, I would have been stuck in the land of silence. If I say my foot slips, your mercy, O Lord, will hold me up. So David begins his talk about how his only help has been the Lord. In the multitude of my anxieties within me, your comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity which devises evil by law have fellowship with you? And, and David kind of throws shade at the politicians, the people that are in charge. They have no intentions of making, a di- making any changes. They don't care about the people they put in, they've been put in charge of or been put in uh, over uh, leadership of. They gather together against the life of the righteous and condemn innocent blood. Uh, they don't even they, they watch it happen and don't really do anything about it. Now, we could talk about several different atrocities that go on in our country that this very clearly describes. But the Lord has been my defense, and God, the rock of my refuge. He's brought on them their own iniquity and shall cut off them in their own wickedness. The Lord our God shall cut them off. So David kind of makes a conclusive statement that I am in his refuge, and he will clearly bring justice against those that are wicked. Now, here's what I gather from that text. Now, you ought to read through that text and really learn how to pray that, pray, pray that psalm as, as if it's your own prayer, advocating for those that are suffering, maybe for your own situation that you're going through. Here's what I gather from that text. In the world, there is wickedness and apathy. There is wickedness and carelessness. There is wickedness and I don't care about anybody but myself pretty good observation of the world, right? In the world, there is wickedness and there is apathy. But in the faith community, for us in the church, there ought to be comfort and refuge. Comfort and refuge. David is praying for somebody, God's people, to rise up and be that vessel of refuge and comfort. We must not side with the world. That includes politics. With anyone on this, anyone on this side of things that might put us on the opposing side of offering comfort and refuge. I think we glean from that text as David is making it very clear that we must condemn wickedness and we must stand against whatever facilitates evil, apathy, or inaction, or just the lack of doing anything. That's what it means to be salt and light, right? To shine on what's shine for what's right, to expose what's wrong, and 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 preserve what's left. Which is a sad thing to say, but the truth of living in a fallen world. And it's sad. It's sad that we have to have conversations like this, isn't it? 
But that's the world we live in and the world that God has placed us in and the world that God says the kingdom is on the doorstep of, which means there's hope. I want to say this. Too often Christianity gets spun up to be all about advancing ourselves. Too often we enter these doors and we think it's just me, myself, and Jesus, and I'm just here for me, and who cares about helping anybody else? It's just what I'm here for, right? I'm here for me. I'm here to worship because I want to feel good. I'm here to learn something because I want to be better, and I want to do better, and I want God to give me more, and I'm out the doors, and I don't really care who else I you know, come in contact with, and I sure as heck aren't worried about people out there in the world. Too often Christianity is all about advancing ourselves. I want more. I need more. There are too many movements that have their hooks in people that pander to Christians and abuse the name of Jesus. And I don't say this to condemn y'all. I say this to, 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 to acknowledge that you guys are so faithful to the house for the right reasons. But also to say shame on the world that has turned the other way. There are too many movements that in order to profit, they lie to people. Making Christianity a means of having more, of feeling better. Essentially making faith a means for personal gain. And that strand of Christianity is so popular in our world today. But you know what exposes that strand of Christianity as being not Christian at all? It cares nothing for other people. It cares nothing for God's greater mission or God's kingdom as a whole. That strand of faith, as booming as it may be and growing as it may be, doesn't bat an eye when anybody suffers. It doesn't lend a hand to help anybody at all. You know what? That strand of Christianity only exists in America. There are no wealth, health, and prosperity preachers in any other country. Isn't that amazing? That strand of Christianity almost exclusively exists in America because it only appeals to people who already have it better off than most everybody else in the world. And it only appeals to greed and hedonism that we've accepted as Christian virtues. God help us and God forgive us. That's why there are arenas with God's branding on them that shut their doors when people suffer. That's why there are bubbles with believers trapped inside that only see what they can gain, not what they can give. And they're not in this to help anybody but themselves. And we aren't that kind of church. And y'all aren't those kind of believers. And thank God for that. And that means it's all the more important that we act because there's many in our world and our country that will not. There's not going to be something to gain in every mission. But there's always something to give. There's not going to be something to gain. There's not going to be profit in every mission that God calls you into. But there's always something to give. And you say, well, Justin, is that supposed to be a good thing? I mean, am I supposed to to say, well, that's great news that, hey, there's nothing to gain, but there's just something to give. Sometimes we might have to give up a lot. But if it means saving, if it means reaching, if it means impacting, if it means comforting, if it costs you everything you've got, is there not still joy to be found in what there is for others to gain if it costs you your life? So I don't know about that, Justin. Let me read it again with a little bit of a different backdrop. (laughs) Back up. There isn't going to be something to gain in every mission, but there's always something to give because on the cross of our Creator, of our Savior, there wasn't anything to gain for himself, but there was just everything to give because the gain was for you and for me. Woo! Right? 
And God condemn any strand of the church that makes it all about, hey, this is just about you and you and you and you. Because that's not who we are and that's not what our world needs and that's not what the people in our country that are suffering need. Church, God forbid, we become all about gain and not about giving because that's, what, that's the world David describes in Psalm 94, a world that doesn't care, doesn't move towards those who are hurting, or a world that's confused in a world who, feel, who feels helpless, full of people who feel helpless. Church, we must be a place that offers comfort. A place that offers a people and a place that offers comfort and refuge to all people because the world remains broken. And I want to talk a little bit about what makes our world so broken and what we must be on guard of even as Christians. There are three things that stand out in our world that I think contribute to all the tragedy. And this isn't me getting on a soapbox, but I just think this is common sense. And y'all, I think this will help us understand and kind of, you know, put into words what's going on in our world and what has always went on in our world, but maybe we see so clearly. And so, you know, brutally, I think there are a few things that contribute to what we face and the tragedies that we see around us. And I think, uh, you know, this might help us understand why, some, why it seems that nothing ever changes. There's three things that contribute to all this mess. Hate, fear, and unbelief. Now, of course, unbelief is kind of the umbrella that these two things exist. But I think these two things, these two things tell us why these things continue to happen and why nothing seems to change. Because there is rampant hatred in our world. And there is rampant fear in our hearts. Our world is full of hate. And this is what God makes clear should be the most different and contrasting thing about His people and about His church. That there is no room for hatred of any kind in the house or the family of God. Y'all know that. But I want to talk about where hate comes from. Hatred stems from a jealous heart. And this might make us a little bit nervous because this, is, this, this will expose the fact that we are all just a few steps away from hate at any given moment. And I'm not trying to make you nervous. I'm, I'm making you aware. All of us know what it's like to be jealous of somebody else. And it's so easy to go from jealousy to hatred. Now, we don't realize just how jealous we are of one another. And I'm not afraid of addressing the, the racism in our country. Come on. The racism in our country, most of it stems from a place of jealousy. Well, they got something I don't have and they're getting help that I'm not getting. Isn't it so isn't it awful? How rampant and how just prolific racism has, has, has became, you know, and it's been a force for years and years and years, for generations. But, and also the social divides in our country all come from a place of jealousy. They've got this and I want that and they're not getting what I've got and I don't want that. Right? Isn't it all about jealousy? And we're so divided, and I know that nothing is ever going to change in, in our, in, under our current political umbrellas, but if we would only come to a place where we see that whatever we have is from God, right? That when we're jealous of somebody based on the treatment they're receiving or based on what they're, you know, what they're going through, when we're jealous of somebody, isn't it, isn't it not about them? It's about what God has given us and what God has given them. We're angry, right? And we become hateful toward people that are only receiving what God gives them as we have received what God has given us. To be jealous of one another, to be jealous of one another or any other, is actually to be angry at God. Right? Because isn't it God who gives? Isn't it God who places? I mean, don't we believe that? 
And this isn't to eschew progress. This isn't to, to, to say what well, you shouldn't try to get, do better and be better. But it definitely is meant to shun jealousy. Solomon wrote this. The fool holds his hands and eats his own flesh. So the fool sits down and says, well, I'm not going to do anything because it's just going to be handed to me. But better is a handful of quietness than two handfuls of tool and striving after wind. So Solomon says, better is someone who knows that God gives and God takes, blessed be his name, than someone that thinks it's a dog-eat-dog world and they're not getting ahead of me and they're not getting by with that because it's mine and I don't care who i got to knock down or who i got to take down to get what I want. If someone gets something that you think they didn't deserve, think about all the things that you've been given that you don't deserve. Amen, right? Think about all the grace that you've been given. And if somebody else gets something monetarily that's not going to last forever anyway, think about what you've been given that's going to never run out. Woo, right? That's, that should fire us up. And if you have to separate yourself from your particular political affiliation to come to a place of peace, then do it. It's worth it. Remember the story of Cain and Abel? Of course you do. How many people were on earth when it was just Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel? One, two, three, four. Can you imagine what it was like when it went from four to three? Wasn't God's plan, was it? God's plan was it was to go from one to two to ten to thirty to hundred to millions. And throughout history it's always been an up like this. But in the beginning, based on a twenty-five percent drop off instantly, it was like this. Don't you think that broke God's heart? Story of Cain and Abel, Abel was accepted, but Cain wasn't. Story goes like this that Abel brought his offering to the Lord. The Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell, as in you could see it, he was just miserable. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? I know why you're angry. You're jealous. You're jealous because somebody else got treatment that you think you deserved, and you don't think he deserved it, but he actually did. But that's not the, that's not the reason for this conversation. Why are you angry? Why are you downcast? If you do well, will you not be accepted? I mean, if you just do what you need to do with what you've been given, aren't you going to be okay at Cain? But if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain, beware! Because I see the jealousy in your heart and it is sprouting into hatred and if you don't get rid of this right now, you will do things you would never see yourself doing. So Cain gets up the next day and he's thinking, I've got to just go tell Cable, Abel what I think of him. That little brat, I'm just going to go out. I'm going to tell him what I think. So the story goes that Cain got up to speak to his brother Abel and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Talk about desensitized, right? I mean, that Genesis 4 verse 8, the word kill is used. Can you, can you believe that? I mean, God help us. How in the world did God put up with... Did, 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 did God not just say, right there, right then, it's over? The word kill is used in the Bible two pages in, three pages in. Killed him. 
The Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He knew. And Cain says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Well, actually, you are. You are. So maybe you're sitting here tonight and you think, what does this matter? What does this matter to me? Am I my brother? Am I my sister's keeper? Yes. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to say no to hate and yes to love. But we reject that idea, don't we? You know what happens when we reject that idea of being our brother and sister's keeper? Exactly what happened to Cain. Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And we have been moving east of Eden ever since. But Jesus came and made His entire, entire mission all about love. Isn't that what He made the cornerstone of His ministry? Jesus, before He died, said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. So how are you to love one another? Just as I have loved you. I'm going to go and die for you just in case you want to know how am I going to love you. You should love one another just as I have loved you. Gentlemen, you must love one another. And then the next part of that statement is so big, and if the church only got this, we could change the world. By this, say it with me, by this, by this, this is the only thing that's going to make a difference. Baptists, not your tithing records. Catholics, not your attendance at Mass. Charismatics, not your power. This is what will change the world. If you want to see the world change, focus on this, on this, on this, by this. All will know you are my disciples if you love one another. So how does God say we will be recognized and we will make a difference? Not by any of the things that we often make everything, the main thing about, right? By this, by loving, by serving, by giving, by doing for one another what God has done for us. That's the most supernatural thing you could ever do. By going up to somebody who is down and out and saying, I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. You don't know me, ma'am, or you don't know me, sir, but I want you to know I love you, and I'm here to help you because that's why God put me on this earth. If only by this. What matters most? Now, in the New Testament age, there was a lot of things getting the attention of the world. God was still giving revelation, so there were all sorts, and God was still proving His presence on earth through signs and wonders. And there was a lot of people in a, in a board meeting at Corinth one night, and they were thinking, hey, what do we got to do to make sure we keep preaching people? And somebody over there was thinking, hey, well, we got to make sure we keep speaking in tongues because that impresses people. You know, because, hey, we're getting revelation from God and God's given us this angelic voice, and we got to make sure we make that the main thing because that's going to make people go, wow! We've got to make sure that we make... It's all about the power and the miracles and the wonders. Somebody else says, no, no, no. It's all about how smart we are. 
It's all about, hey, we're right, they're wrong, we're right, they're wrong, we're right, they're wrong, they're, they're wrong, they're going to hell, we're the only ones that are right. We've got to make sure we cross our arms and say, you're wrong, we're right, if you want to get to heaven, you better be with us. Somebody else was like, come on. We've got to make sure that people think that, that we, have this, this inc- we have this connection to God that nobody else has got. So if you want in on what God is really doing in the world, if you want in on what God, you know, what the mystical Gnostic knowledge of God, you better come to us because all these other people, they're just confused. They just have it halfway right. The Apostle Paul walked into that group and he said, wrong, wrong, wrong. Let me tell you how we're going to change the world from this point forward. Love never ends. Love never fails. He says, hey, these prophecies that we're so obsessed with, they will pass away. Tongues, they're going to cease. Knowledge and special knowledge, it's passing away. All this stuff that we're so obsessed with in our New Testament era that even churches today try to get back all because it's still working. Paul says all that stuff is fading away. It's ending. It was a time and place that had a purpose, but what God is going to use to change the world going forward is none of those things. The revelation is complete. The wonder has been made through Christ. The knowledge is what God God has given to everyone and what he's going to change the world through is by love loving one another God's choice way of making Christianity known in our fallen world is by love by this Jesus in the New Testament calls us to leverage our lives our relationships our money our jobs all for God's glory and you know, Jesus made, made a statement one, one night. He says, greater things will you do than I've done. People go real crazy with that. Greater can, can't refer to scope and significance, significance because what would ever and what could ever be greater than Jesus' death and resurrection? He wasn't saying that we're going to do things that are more impressive than that. Greater means, as in great commission, it means depth and width and scale. It means you're going to go wider and wider. You're going to go deeper and deeper. You're going to go farther and farther. You are going to love people in ways and in, 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 in regions of the world that, that, that I never thought about going to. So we live and we love from this place. The church only makes true progress from this place. Services and traditions and shows and signs and wonders, they don't change the world. They might impress people, but they don't and they won't ever, ever, ever make a difference in a dark, dark world. They won't change a sinner's heart. But I know what does change a sinner's heart. I know what has been changing sinners' hearts since the Roman Empire thought they could stamp Christianity out. I know what changes every generation's heart when this is the main thing. Love one another. What if we made sure that the church was known for above and beyond everything else? Love one another. John would write years later. If anyone says, I love God and he hates his brother, he's a liar. But you got to hear him preach, Justin. Well, you got to see that you can't say this person's a liar. You don't know how their, their background's so different and they've just been raised that way. If anyone says he loves God but hates his brother, I'm sorry, he's a liar. Well, John, that's kind of mean for you to say. You don't know what this person, you don't know what he's been through by the. I'm just telling you, I know, I know. He's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Next verse. 
And this commandment we have from Him, whoever loves God must also love his brother because our love for God is authenticated by our love for others. And it's empty without it. But because we've walked away from God, we aren't just full of hatred. We're our people full of fear. And that was a sermon in and of itself. I'll preach that again one night. Just consider this. We are the safest, most comfortable country in the world, yet we are the most fearful people in the world, aren't we? And I know tragedies don't help us feel any safer, but I just have to say that God's people don't do a good job at leading from a place of trusting in God and leaning into God. We double down on earthly institutions and earthly defense mechanisms, and I'm not against being smart or being protected but, we should, but should we really defend things before we defend people? Should we defend institutions and ideas before we defend people? I don't think so, but shouldn't we model confidence and trust and security? And I'm sure all of you have heard before, there's a command or a version of it in the Bible over 365 times, one for every day of the year. And you know what that is, don't you? There's a commandment in the Bible. It's all over the Bible. Do not be afraid. You know why the Bible tells us that so many times? Because we're very afraid. We're so scared, aren't we? We've got security systems on our security systems. I'm not, I'm not making fun. I'm just, we're very scared. Joshua 1.9, God told Joshua way back, Have I not commanded, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you. I mean, I'm just going with you. I mean, you have no reason to be afraid, do you? I'm going to be with you. Maybe the most famous story of Je- uh, about God telling the people not to be afraid is the story of Jesus in the storm. Y'all know the story, Mark chapter 4. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go aside, let us go across to the other side. So you think when Jesus said, hey, we're going to the other side, you can have confidence that we're going to get to the other side, even if the journey to the other side is a little bumpy. But the story goes, that a great windstorm rose and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, Jesus, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him. Teacher, do you not care that we are dying? You don't sound dead to me. Do you not care that we are perishing? Do you not care? Do you not care? Maybe not the best thing to ask God. And he woke and he rebuked the wind. He said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind was ceased. And there was a great calm. And then Jesus asked this question that you think, I think it's silly for him to ask because he knew why and they knew why, but he still asked it. Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this man? You know why we were afraid, Jesus? Because it was storming and we were sinking and you were sleeping. One, two, three reasons to be afraid. It was storming, we were sinking, and you were sleeping, so we had a lot of reasons to be afraid. But Jesus says, but yeah, why were you afraid? Do you not have faith? Jesus, yeah, who cares about faith? We were afraid, but, 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 but doesn't faith mean that you don't have be afraid? Jesus, that's just silly. Are you telling me that my faith allows me to d- decide 
if I'm going to be afraid or not? Exactly. Y'all heard me say this before. We don't have to be afraid. I know you feel afraid. I know it's natural to be afraid. And I know there's a lot of reasons to be afraid. But we don't have to be afraid, do we? See, it doesn't work like that, Justin. I can't help it. We don't have to be afraid even though there's something to be afraid of. The reason why we don't have to be afraid is because we have and can choose to believe, to trust. Fear is a learned trait for Christians. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I mean, David, can you really make that declaring kind of statement? I will fear no evil. I mean, really, that's bold to say. Even though, even though, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me. Our American motto, last time I checked, on our money, on our plaques, is in God we trust. But do we model that motto? Our Christian motto is we should love like Christ loved. But do we model that? We must. We must get any ounce of hatred out of our hearts. We must get any ounce of fear out of our hearts. If we were to lead with love and live by faith, how different the world might be. We could change our country. We might talk to people that we otherwise wouldn't talk to because our politics were different. If we said, hey, I'm not afraid, and I'm willing to talk to you about whatever I need to talk to because I'm not afraid and I don't care, I have nothing to be afraid of. And I'm saying no to hate. Because lives can be changed and saved. So we refuse. We reject hatred. We choose love. We refuse fear. We choose faith. Now if you think I was up here with a political agenda, I wasn't. One point might have been geared toward certain people. One point might have been geared toward other certain people. But it's not about politics. If we are clinging to hate in any way, if we are clinging to fear in any way, we are contributing to our world's fallen state, not improving it. We're not living with a kingdom come attitude. I don't care about political convictions or persuasions. I don't care how you feel about the cause or influence. We must pray. We must move. Our leaders have a moral obligation to take action. We have a spiritual obligation to pray, support, and comfort, and advocate. Our allegiance is not to politicians, not even ultimately to this nation. Our allegiance is to God and His kingdom. And what does God require of us? Y'all know by now that we would be salt and light and refuge. Called to love one another and trust God. Our attitudes, our advocacy, our actions should all reflect these above all else. What if we decided I'm not going to hate anymore? I'm not going to be afraid anymore. Hatred's what led a young man to do something so awful in a place that we all go 
so many times a week. Hatred's what made a man do something. Hatred's what's wired our nation to be so hostile towards certain people of colors or statuses. Fear is what has made a lot of people refuse to negotiate, refuse to even talk about what we can do. And we might not ever fix those problems. But what if the church rose up and said, we're going to love people. And we're going to show people that we're not afraid. We're not afraid. How different the world might be. A lot of innocent blood might not be lost. A lot of hearts could be changed. Let me pray for you. Father, this is an intense conversation to have, but it's one that we ought to have over and over again because we as the church ought to be known for our love and our faith. Father, there are people in our world they just hate. Nobody in here has hate in their heart, I know, and I'm sure, but we can pray for those people that do. But Father, there are people in this house, I'm sure, that would confess that there's fear. There's anxiety, there's worry, there's unbelief. And I don't want to be afraid anymore. Father, if we only stood out in our world for these two things, how different it might be, how changed it might become. Father, our world needs advocates. Our world needs people that are willing to lay down at the altar and say, Father, I, I, I don't know what I can do, but I know I can pray. I know I can put, seek you first. I know I can decide I'm going to love people tomorrow like I've never loved them before. I know I'm going to believe in you and trust in you like I've never believed and trusted in you before. And if that can help make a difference, if that can start, uh, start something, I know I can do it. Father, this altar is open to any of your people that want to advocate for those that have lost loved ones, those that have uh, suffered in their own way. This altar is open to anybody that wants to step out and say, I'm not afraid and I don't want to, I don't want to live in fear anymore. This altar is open to anybody that says, hey, I want to fight against hatred. I want to fight against those awful things by loving, by loving, by loving, because this will make a difference. Father, I pray that you would give us this invitation, this opportunity to make a difference in our world, and may this altar be the beginning, a springboard, a platform for life to change tomorrow and forever. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.